all you guys out there, uh, before I really get started, I want to share with you a new book. It's a collection of horror crime from post-Civil War backwoods, Kentucky. The title is The Crooked Sourwood, Kentucky's Forgotten Tragedies. This book is set in post-Civil War central Kentucky. It's in a small mountain range just south of the Ohio River. This area provides a setting for these tales of betrayal, corruption, and murder. The Crooked Sourwood, Kentucky's Forgotten Tragedy. Now with a title like that, you know you can't go wrong. And Chapter titles like Murder and Betrayal, The Tragic Death of Francis Underwood, The Brutal Ex-Murder of Henry Simpson, The Boonshiners, Stories of Hell's Commerce, Going to Eat Their Suppers in Hell. Now, you know, that's got to pique your interest. This was written by a local LaRue County, Kentucky author named Stephen L. Wright. Sometimes you may not get the right story, as we all know. Now, Stephen Wright has done genealogical and historical research for more than 40 years, and he has researched these cases for 30 of those 40 years. He feels like he's fully explored each case as far as possible. So if you want to get the straight story about these horror crimes of post-Civil War backwoods, Kentucky, you can find that on Amazon or shoot Mr. Wright an email at stephenw105 at scrtc.com. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, hello, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. Getting into the springtime now. You probably notice it's warming up a little bit after a long, cold winter. I don't know if you've got your COVID vaccine yet. I don't know if I will have had it by the time this comes out. I am a little bit older, so I'll get it quicker than some of you younger guys, I hope. But right now, when I'm actually recording this, it's kind of a nightmare out there. Nobody knows who's going to get what, and it's a mess. But anyhow, we keep putting out these podcasts, and it's something I can do here in the studio and via Zoom. And I have Anthony Solano on a Zoom call, so you'll be able to see it on YouTube also, if you'd rather, if you want to go see what he looks like. And he served 22 years with the NYPD in a variety of different posts, like all of us did. You got to spend some time in uniform. You got to spend the time, some time as maybe a detective in a different unit. He spent a lot of time with working organized crime in New York City. So we're going to talk to him about his experiences. He also has written a couple of novels, uh, crime novels, since he's left the PD. So uh, welcome, Tony. And thank you for having me, Gary. It's good to have you. Let's start talking about, you know, a little bit about your overview of your career with the NYPD. Okay. My introduction to the police department actually occurred. I was on a bus going to college. It was only about a 20-minute ride for me. And at that time, you know, 20 years old, 19 years old, I didn't really know what I wanted to be until I saw these two policemen come on the on the bus. And they happened to sit directly across from where I was sitting on the bus. They were on their way to court because they had these court papers in their hand. And three things struck me about that. The first thing was they got on the bus without having to pay. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, the second thing was they had these guns, and I thought that was pretty impressive as well. They were legal, of course. And then the third thing that struck me, though, was they were happy. In those days, the cops were happy. They were having a good time talking to each other. I ended up thinking that maybe that would be something I could do when I took the police test. And I got appointed a couple of years later. I think I was 21 when I finally went on the police department, and I went in uniform and 
After a year or two, I, I ended up as an anti-crime cop. And, and basically, they were claim, plain clothes detail. We would jump out of taxi cabs and make arrests, stuff like that. So crimes being committed in progress. And from there, I went into the Organized Crime Control Bureau, which is a section called the Narcotics Division. And I spent some time there. And then I went into the Drug Enforcement Task Force, which was made up of the DEA agents, the state troopers, and the NYPD. And from there, I went into the 5th Detective Squad in Little Italy in Manhattan, on Mulberry Street, where they had a ton of wise guys. The Ravenite Social Club was down there. That was a guy by the name of Neil Della Croce's club. And I spent two years there. And from there, I went into the DA's office out in Queens County, which was the resident borough of many racketeers, including uh, guys like John Gotti. And I spent four years there, and I sort of got an expertise by that time on organized crime. I was the liaison for the DA with all the outside agencies concerning organized crime cases. So we would try to make cases. We did a lot of surveillance out there with the wise guys. And believe it or not, a lot of intelligence I got came from the courthouses. Because when these folks were on trial, I would sit in there every day at the trial, and I would watch them and see how they interact and be able to see who the bosses were just by the way they handled each other. And it really gave me a big understanding into these guys. And I did that for four years. And then after that, I made sergeant. And I worked in uniform again for about a year. And then I went into the detective division as a detective sergeant and then ultimately a squad commander in a bunch of different places. Again, in Brooklyn, it's sort of broken up into Brooklyn North and Brooklyn South. And all the gangsters were in Brooklyn South. And I happened to be in Brooklyn North <laughs> until... A guy by the name of Bobby Borriello got killed, and then they transferred me from Brooklyn North to Brooklyn South to work on that homicide. Borriello was John Gotti's driver. And I did that, you know, when I retired then 22, after 22 years, I ended up starting working for a security company called First Security Services out of Boston. It was a huge company. It was a $100 million company. You know, as far as security company goes, I mean, that was a top-notch company. I did that for uh, two, I think it was two years. And then I started my own company in Midtown Manhattan investigative firm. And I did that for 17 years and I retired there and, you know, closed up. And then I just started writing these novels and that's what I do now. <laughs> Interesting. You've had quite a varied career. You've got a lot of fodder, shall we say, for those novels, for crime novels. You've seen it all, sounds like. Well, that's true. You know, I got to tell you something about the novel. You do see so much, you know, it's sort of like you have the front row seat of the circus. You know, all the acrobats and everybody else up close. <laughs> really? and, but I, I have to honest, be honest with you. The biggest insight I had was I wasn't much of a student. And when I was a kid, we, you know, we moved around quite a bit. And, and I lived in three different neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Now, in those days, when you moved into a neighborhood, you know, there were no play dates. You weren't greeted with open arms. You, you had to sort of establish yourself. Either you stayed in the house or you went out, you know, made friends. And that took some doing. And so each one of those neighborhoods, they were different, made up of different ethnicities. So you have to learn to adapt and get along with everyone. And for me, that was the greatest fodder for these books because it provided some really interesting insights. Uh, really, really, I'll bet. Say you spent a couple of years down on Mulberry Street watching, helping to watch Gotti's crew. Now, did you uh, work like at a task force with the FBI or were you guys doing your own thing? Well, at that time, I was assigned to a precinct, the fifth precinct. And we would just catch whatever cases happened from homicide, robbery, whatever came our way. The interactions I had with the wise guy were basically incidental. I mean, it wasn't oh. out looking to, to do anything. But an interesting story, I could tell you, 
I think it was the first week I was assigned to that precinct, I had to make a notification to a family member of somebody who lived on the Bowery. Now, the Bowery was with all the people down on their luck, you know, in the alcoholics were housed yeah. in the club houses down there. And uh, the rule was that if somebody happened to be hospitalized, you had to notify the family. Otherwise, it became a missing person. So I got a line on the family of this one particular person who was in a hospital, and I walked up Mulberry Street to make the notification. As I'm walking up the street, there was a guy. Now, this was the summertime. He was standing on the corner with an overcoat, a double-breasted overcoat, a suit and tie, and a fedora. And he must have been, <laughs> he must have been about 60 years old. To me, he looked 100 because I was only in my early 30s. And he looked at me like... I have to tell you, he looked at me that if he could have killed me, he would have done it. <laughs> I was on his street. And <laughs> it turned out later that I realized who he was. He was a guy by the name of Joe Beck. His name was Joe Di Palermo. And he was a major junk dealer. I believe it was the Lucchese family. And he was the guy when Joe Valachi was in jail. Joe Valachi thought that Vito Genovese was going to kill him when they were in Yeah, prison. I remember that. Right. So Valachi was paranoid. And he saw... A guy in jail who he thought was this Joe Beck, this Joe Di Palermo. And Valachi killed him in the prison, in the prison yard. He hit him with a pipe and killed him. That was a guy who was standing on the corner. He thought <laughs> that was a guy who was standing on the corner. When I tell you, the guy had a face that could stop a clock. <laughs> well, now we, now we know why he scared Joe Valachi so much. <laughs> well, he scared me. I mean, he was a scary looking guy. <laughs> it, that's a heck of a story. That's really interesting. Talk about your small world for you. Well, uh, down there, they, they had, you know, Mother Street had some characters. Forget his name, but an incident, there was a person murdered in his apartment. And he was, I don't know, maybe 30 years old. He, was, he looked like he was dead for about three or four days. So when we notified the family, Jay came in, husband and wife, older couple, I would say he was in his late 50s. And she was maybe around the same. And we sat him in the office to make this notification, which is never easy. I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of bad news you're conveying. I don't know what he thought he was being called in there for, because it turned out he was probably half a wise guy. But when he sat in his seat, before we could say anything, he reached at his shirt and he ripped open his shirt, popping the buttons where he had the stitches going across his chest. He says, I've been at death's door. <laughs> he thought he was undergoing some terrible, <laughs> some terrible interrogation. He thought he was, you know, I'm telling you, your son is dead, but he's ripped off his shirt. <laughs> that was uh, some of the guys on, on, on Mulberry Street. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Remember, I was trying to get tough a guy once. He looked at me. I was more of a guy that would, you know, use a little honey to get you around to my side of the world. And he said, you know, he said, you're trying to get tough. He said, I've been cuffed from every end since I was a little kid. You might as well forget about it. I said, you know, dude, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's crazy. That's really the key. You're not going to out-tough these guys. (laughs) Mm -mm, mm -mm. Plenty tough. So, I mean, you're better off just uh, coming at them a different way. They figure you can do something for them. You can help with them some matter, but they got to help you. That's the key to that deal. <laughs> so you work drug cases with the DEA. Now, I've read a little bit about some of those drug cases in New York City. They had some pretty good-sized cases. You had a lot of big Colombian presence. And I believe this Jose Miguel Batista was a Cuban Drug dealer had a pretty good pipeline up into New York City and New Jersey area during that time. Is that what kind of drug cases you worked? Yeah, kind of. But, you know, we mostly, we did, I don't know, two, three keys of cocaine. Yeah. I was in a cocaine group up there. 
and we had an undercover for the police department. And he was a former Marine, and he's just a great undercover. He was, matter of fact, you, you could even think he was a cop, and you'd sell him just to get him off your back. I mean, he, he, was, a, <laughs> he was an incredibly persuasive yeah. undercover. And he used to do these deals, and we used to do them knockoffs. You know, we would, he'd order up keys, and we'd be laying for the deal. And quite often, I would be his backup at a bar someplace. And then when the transaction went down, the, uh, the teams would move in, and we would make the arrest right off the bat. But... What I used to do is I used to try to start small cases with an undercover, sending them to a location, maybe copying some drugs off the street, and then building a case from there. And what's great about the DEA was that you weren't restricted to any one area. The whole city was your area. You can go wherever you wanted to. So for me, it was any place where I knew that there were drug locations that I couldn't touch while in uniform, I was able to touch once I was assigned to the DEA. Uh-huh. So, yeah, we had a guy who worked in intelligence unit. He had been in narcotics for quite a while and kind of burned himself out there and, and really was pretty well known in that world. We mainly worked just Italians and they didn't work. They had nothing to do with the street narcotics or even mid-level or any kind of narcotics in Kansas City. But that guy, he, he was one of those guys. <laughs> he's the kind of guy, as the captain told me, he said, you know, he said, he's the kind of guy that if you got a problem, you just tell him and he'll go take care of it and won't ask any questions. And you don't want to ask any questions. Just let him go. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like your guy, your friend was that kind of guy. I mean, just ballsy as all get out. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Uh, he had an informant in a bar one night and the informant was acting stupid, kind of going to expose him. And like I said, with our intelligence, you know, we just did not want to be exposed in any manner. And the guy was kind of like showing, pointing out people. And the guy started getting drunk and getting stupid. And I found out later from one of the other guys that was there that night that my guy took him and headbutted him so hard it knocked him clear out. And then they just took him on outside. Like, oh, my God. I was a sergeant at the time. I said, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. A lot of characters in that world, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, strange things sometimes happen. I mean, there was a guy that when I was in a DA's office, he was actually a cop killer. And he was a major, you know, he's a made guy in Genovese family. And we were assigned to keep an eye on him. They thought that he may have sconed. And so we were following him around. And my partner and I, and he, <laughs> this particular guy, he was making and running errands that he didn't want his family to know about. I mean, his personal family. Yeah. And, and we were following him and he led us a chase. I have to tell you, he must have been driving 100 miles an hour. He was a tremendous wheel man. And needless to say, he lost us. I mean, we took him to the first spot or two. And then after that, he knew we, when he knew we were following him, he just lost us, you know, I mean, with that crazy driving of that speed. So that was it. You know, we, we said, OK, he's gone now. So we went back to the office. Now, on the way back to the office, we decided to stop for a cup of coffee in a diner on a street called Lawson Street, which is a big wide street, well, well lit. And in those days, they, they had telephone booths that were still out on the street. And we're going to this place for a cup of coffee. And who's on the telephone? But this very guy we've been following. <laughs> and so I got out of the car when I went up to him. I said, you know, are you crazy? You're going to get us killed. He looked at me. He was stunned. That it was us. <laughs> I don't forget what he thinks. You guys are good. <laughs> yeah, we're good. good right? <laughs> yeah, we are good. You can't get away from us. <laughs> no. The next time we saw, the next time I saw him, 
he said to me, I figured it out. You guys were lucky. I said, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> we were. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, I got a book. He's twice once and got it. He put a bunch of paperwork in there. So I kind of figured out he, I'd say he's a bookie. He was more of a better than a, running a book. He was a better, but he had run a book before. And, but I figured out from the games that he had marked down and that he was taken. And I looked at the point spreads and who won what that weekend. And he had lost a lot of money. So I go, uh, now I want to turn him, see? So I want him to think that I've got a lot more on him than what I do or what I really have on him. And so I started talking, approached him and started talking to him. And, you know, hey, he said, you can talk to me once in a while. You know, I want to know what's going on. Uh, you know, I can't do that. And I said, you know, you had a bad weekend last weekend, didn't you? And his face just like fell. It just <laughs> fell. And I could see him like trying to figure out, well, what is he on? Got a wire on me or what's going on? And he never really quite broke that day, but he left the door open that maybe I could come back. Yeah. And of all things, I ran into him in the grocery store. He kind of lived not too far from where I lived. And I ran into him in the grocery store <laughs> and he was about half drunk. It was weird. He had a glass of wine in his head. I'd never seen that before or after in a grocery store. And I could tell he was like feeling pretty good and drinking this glass of wine. And and, and he said, hey, he said, yeah, he said, I figured out. He said, you got my trash, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, there's no use getting his trash after that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun working these guys. I tell you what, uh, you guys had a copper killed. And a female officer was right there following one of these guys sometime during those years, if I remember right. You yeah. remember that? Well, that was the story. I was, that was the guy who I was just talking about. No, the same guy. The same and, guy, and, yeah. And yeah. somebody else was following him. And I, That's was right. it, a couple of people from OCCB were following him. And, yeah. and they followed him in a, in a diner. And how exactly that, what people were thinking at the time, I, you know, I, you don't know because you're not them. But I think that the racketeer thought he was being rat ripped off. I mean, I certainly, mm-hmm. I'm sure he didn't know that, that it was a cop. So what happened was, I guess he produced a gun and then gunfire exchange and the male police officer got shot. And unfortunately, he died, you know, over that. Yeah. That was a series of trials, serious trials. And now he's dead too, that, that particular gangster. Fritzy Giovanelli, his name was. Uh-huh. Interesting. Um, yeah, that was, uh, that was quite a deal. I kind of. Yeah. Struck me. I mean, we followed a lot of people and, you know, end up getting kind of close to them accidentally in a, in a bar or a restaurant or running, just running into them on the street as they turned back around and, and never had anything even close to that, but did have some guys I was watching. It was a mob associates funeral. So I'm sitting up the hill from the funeral home and just seeing who comes and goes and write down the license numbers. And all of a sudden, about four or five guys came boiling out of that funeral home, jumped in a couple, three cars. And as they left, they came right for me and pinned me in. (laughs) It's like, oh, man. So I had a gun, of course, and I just get it out and hold it right down underneath the where they can't exactly see it up against the door. But I'm ready to just come straight up with it as they jump out and run up to my car. And I'm getting my badge out with the other hand and said, hey, you know, please. They go, oh, okay, All right. All right. They get back in their cars to go back down to the funeral home. but. You don't want them to think that you're the crook or an informant or anything. You want them to know you're the police at some point in time. With if if yeah. they feel threatened, you well, better you right. let them know they're the you're the police. They don't really want to hurt the police. They understand the game. They but yeah. if they think you may be some a hitman after them or and got into a couple of those situations where you know they didn't know who I was, but they knew that there were 
you know, people out stalking each other trying to kill them. So that's, uh, got to let them know you're the cops pretty quick when you get into a confrontation. That, you know, it's so true. You know, it's very hard because the, from a police standpoint, unless they're somewhat familiar, that's a very awkward position they're in when they have to deal with the, the angry wise guy. And in, yeah. from the wise guy's perspective, it's, uh, I mean, let's face it, they're criminals and, uh, and thugs. It's an awkward position for them to be up against the law. So I remember one time we knocked, during the Columbo Wars, we were, uh, we knocked over a place. I was a sergeant and we knocked over a place with the legal gambling. We we're putting a lot of pressure on the mobsters to try to, you know, put a lid on this war. And we were locking people up and the policeman was trying to put handcuffs on this one particular wise guy who was, I, I, you know, he wasn't such a young guy either. And he wasn't having none of it. And I remember I had to intervene. He would not, he would not allow a woman to put handcuffs on him. That was ah, interesting. That was his point. And she quite obviously the woman, the policewoman didn't see it that way. Yeah. And uh, so it really took explaining to both of them, you know, apart from each other, that, that you got to understand his perspective. Yeah. He was brought up this way. Yeah. And I said yeah. to him, you have to understand her perspective. <laughs> She's entitled to handcuffs on you. It's almost like you're refereeing. Uh, really? you know. And sometimes you got to think a little bit like them. Just to make it work. I mean, gee, I remember we had a guy in the office one time in the DA's office. His name was Anthony Guerrero. He was a made guy with the Gambinos. And he was having a baby because we knocked over his bookmaking operation. And he was really upset because, you know, we took a lot of his money from him. He had bills, you know, had his kids in the Catholic school and all of that. So he was very upset over this. The boss I worked for was a big organized crime guy who really broke me. And his name was Remo Franceschini. And Remo said two words to him, and he shut this guy down, you know, like that, like, like like that. He said, John Gotti doesn't talk to me like that. And the guy died. He stopped right there, cold, never said another <laughs> word. And, and that impressed me because I said, wow, this man is really, you know, a guy to be feared. Well, fast forward a little longer, I got to find that out firsthand. Gotti was on trial, you know, one of his many trials. And in those days, I would go to the court every day. And this one particular guy that was a defendant in one of his cases had gotten in trouble. And there was some concern that that guy may roll over and become an informant. And there was further concern by the authorities that Gotti may abscond. So we were told to sit on his house. So we were at, he had a small house in Howard Beach. So we're parked basically across the avenue from where he was in full sight. There was no hiding. There was nothing clever about this. So about 11 o'clock, a guy comes by to deliver his clothes, his tailored clothes. And this kid walks in. I, I guess he was about 20 years old. He walked in to the house, but he, he saw us. And then he came out of the house. He got into his car, which was a Cadillac, and he drove around the block and he pulled up next to the Buick Skylock that we were in. Now, the Buick Skylock had those little square windows. And when he pulled up alongside the car, the guy I was with, you know, rolled down the windows, see what he had to say. And the kid said, now he could have just crossed the street and spoke to us, but he didn't. He went around the block. He had in the car, drove around the yeah. block to pull up next to us. And he said, Mr. Gotti's got something for you in the house. And we didn't answer him. And then he said again, he repeated himself. He said, Mr. Gotti's got something for you in the house. You sneaky. You know, he said some other stuff. So the guy I was with responded in kind. And, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> so the kid goes across the street again. Five minutes later, John Gotti comes out. Out of the house. Now, you know, you're used to seeing him a certain way. You know, he's well dressed, yeah. he's groomed, and yeah. everything is perfect on him. Even when he's dressed down, I mean, he's dressed nice. 
Well, this day he didn't shave. His hair was a little messy. He was in a jogging suit. And he comes lumbering across the street with his son and this kid. Now, I got to be honest with you. The three of them could have murdered us. <laughs> we we, we <laughs> put no chance physically against these three. Yeah. And uh, as they're coming over to the car, the guy I'm with takes out his gun and he's got it between his legs. I know the guy I'm with. I can see a headline. You, you know what I mean? God, he shot in front of his house. I'm thinking to myself, this, this guy's got four brothers. I said, somebody's going to kill him. As it turned out, Gotti came to the uh, to the floor and he stuck his head right down in, into the glass of the driver's side. And he went, I can't tell you how angry he was. I, I would have to say nobody lived that, that saw him that angry. If you remember when you were a kid, the first time you stood in front of a classroom, you know, like yeah, nervous, yeah. you get those twitches <laughs> in your face. You can't get, well, that was yeah. him. Every muscle in it, you know, it was twitching. He was furious. And what do I have to be? I have to be like a Muslim with you guys and whatever, you know, and on and on and on and on. So one thing I learned, there's only so many words a person can say before they stop talking. Yeah. So, so Interesting. Once he yeah. stopped talking, he looked. Now he's had sort of an inquisitive look about him because he expected <laughs> us to say something. And when he finished, I was able to say to him, I said, you know, we, we're in the courtroom with you every day for like months and months and months. I said, no, there's never a question of disrespect forcing the law with you. I said, so I don't understand, you know, what I don't know what that kid told you, but this is totally embarrassing. There's nobody on the street here. I mean, there's just us. There's nobody, everybody's in the house now. And then he looked and he says, well, what are you doing? I says, we don't get up in the morning, decide we want to visit you. We're directly, we're told to come here. Who told you? He said, Remo sent us here. Now he knew Remo, by the way. Oh, yeah. He said, Remo, that was our boss. He said, Remo, you tell Remo, I'll meet him in any schoolyard in Queens. He can bring a machine gun. <laughs> now, Remo was a very macho, rest his soul, Remo was a very macho guy. He fought in the Golden Gloves. He was in the Army like uh, seven years or the Air Force. He got into a shootout in the street and he killed a guy who shot his partner. I mean, you know, Remo was a very macho guy in his own right. So the last thing I was going to do was to tell Remo. So what happened was, after he went off on Remo, which went on for like another few minutes, then he stopped. <laughs> oh, God. And I said, now Remo's a mile away, so the immediate danger is off us. You know, <laughs> so then he, when he got done on Remo, I did say to him, I said, you know, but he takes his orders from the DA. The DA? <laughs> who, Santucci? And then he went off on the DA. I know his brother, and I know his girlfriend, you know, and on and on and on and on with the DA. Then when he finally got done again, he stopped talking when he was done with the DA. I got out of the car. That's when I said to him, I says, you know, not for nothing. And I says, I, I mean, we're the only ones on the street here. I don't know what this kid told you, but it was certainly not accurate. But, it, you know, to put you in this state. And he realized he had been hired. And he turned around and looked at that kid. And he pointed his finger at the kid. And he said, that effing kid is an a-hole. But he, was, he said asshole. And he says, his brother is, and his father is the biggest one. It was like he stuck a pen in his kid. You know, the kid was so pumped up. And then, and then he just got inflated. Then he did the strangest thing in the world. He put out his hand. He shook my hand. <laughs> he didn't apologize, but it was an acknowledgement that yeah. he blew off base. And, and I have to say, it's the only time I ever heard of anything like that happening. That really? A a, that is a hell of a story. That's a good one. Yeah, so much so that when I, I started a training program, when I had my business, School Streetwise Communication, based off that yeah. story. Had uh, a few situations and, you know, I don't yeah. know what Huh. That's the important thing in police work anymore. When I first, you and I first started, it wasn't really about diffusing situations. It was about controlling situations. And 
uh, through sheer power and force, and that's all it was about. But that's right. by now, 25, 30 years later, it's about diffusing situations, which we've learned that it's much more skillful to, to diffuse a situation than than to try to overpower somebody, just, you know. Absolutely right. Like even with even with the thing with the, the Gotti story, I understood where he was coming from. He was reacting to whatever this kid told him. So this isn't him thinking normally. You know, this is him thinking as an irate man. I, got, I understood that. And then once it was straightened out and he understood it, well, then it was things clearly it was, it was back to normal. And I think a lot of times with the, with the interaction, sometimes that the law enforcement people get into, they don't give it that minute. They feel threatened and they have to preserve their the integrity of their position. I think that's something in the police academy they really need to, they can do better at instructing. They really need street guys to do the instructing. I know in the New York City Police Department, the instructors haven't seen the street in years. <laughs> <They're very laughs> yeah. Same way here, yeah. <laughs> Same way here. Yeah, that's it. They, they really need the guys who got their hands dirty in the street. The Age usually helps with that. I know I finally learned that when somebody's mad like that, they're scared. And when I get mad like that, I'm scared. It's fight or flight. And I can't run, so I'm going to fight. And that it's just, you know, to acknowledge that somebody is just scared, it's like, oh, well, he's just scared. Just let him kind of cool out a little bit and talk to him normally. When you're young, especially, it's hard to do. It, you just want to come back and dominate. And that's hope they teach in the academy a little more, some more of those techniques like that. You know, that's interesting. I think that's something that the public doesn't factor into their thinking, you know, and especially when they criticize the, the police. The police are in a job where they don't back, they're not built to back away. They're not built to run away. They're built to go after that guy with a gun. They're built to chase some guy up a roof, go into a burning building. They're geared to do those things. Now, when you ask that person to stand there still and be abused, they're asking a lot because it goes contrary to what they do. It's very unfair, I think, anyway. Very unfair. Yeah, and that's a good point. Uh, the public doesn't really understand that at all. When we had this Michael Brown incident in St. Louis, which is, you know, pretty close and kind of more personal here in Kansas City, and and the young policeman got off of a sudden, I've lost his name, Dennis something, and Anyhow, the young policeman ends up, this guy's this huge big guy, is confronting him, tried to take his gun away from him, and then lost at that, walked away, and then came back after him. And he shot him and killed him when he came back after him. I had a guy, a lawyer, young lawyer that I went to law school with. I went to law school after I left the PD. He called me. He was a lawyer down in the middle part of the state, kind of a smaller town, and he got a hold of me. He said, I'm really concerned about this. He said, I want to ask you a question. He said, could that guy, could that policeman done anything else? You know, wasn't there something else he could do? And I said, well, I don't know all the facts exactly, but it doesn't sound to me like it. And he said, well, couldn't he just like locked himself in his car till he got help? Yeah, I said, man, I said, do you want a policeman that's going to lock themselves in the car when you got a huge big guy that's already robbed a store and uh, tried to take the policeman's gun away and you had to fight him off once. Do you want a guy that's just going to lock himself in the car? <laughs> this young lawyer says, well, man, I guess not. <laughs> I mean, that's not the kind of guy that you want out there. You want a guy that's going to protect you, uh, that's got the balls to jump in there and protect people. Jesus. No. Well, it's true. It's the only thing that's stopping the bad people from taking things away from the good people are the cops. Yeah, you tie them up, and uh, there's nothing stopping. I would not want to be out there on the street today. No, I don't know how they do it. For sure. I don't either.
I walked down. We had some demonstrations going, and I lived reasonably close to that area. And I walked down there just to be close and for see for myself. You know, I used to do that when I was in intelligence. That's one thing we did is there was a demonstration. We would go in and mix in with the crowd and things like that. And we always had to be really careful. We got in some trouble once when they got exposed. <laughs> the uh, liberal media doesn't like it when the police are using uh, acting as media and. Yeah. Uh, Get working themselves into uh, political demonstrations. So you got to be really careful when you're doing that. <laughs> but I walked down there and, and it was amazing. These people were, these young policemen were just standing there on this line and they were hurling all kinds of abuse and getting up in their faces. And then every once in a while, there'd be bottles of water come flying out of the back of the crowd. And, and of course, would hit them and, and they just stand there. And then until they got the order, then they acted with great discipline. And then they got the order. Then they'd start moving forward and they'd hit them with some tear gas, pepper spray and things like that. And they'd back up and push them back to where they were and then go back to their line and hold again. It was crazy. I, I had never, thank God, I'd never had to gotten myself. I got in one situation that was kind of like that. It was terrifying. I'm going to tell you, being up on that line is terrifying when you're yeah. up front. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, we've digressed from organized crime quite a little bit, but I like that, you know, and I think the listeners out there kind of like a couple of cops talking about what it's really like, and I've gotten that feedback before. So talk a little bit more about the Colombo Organized Crime Task Force during the, was it the Third Colombo War? They, yeah. They tried to kill this arena guy, and that's when Greg Scarpa was operating. Who was? I just did an interview with somebody on him. That guy, oh, my God, he was scary. There was a lot of killing going on oh, during oh, that yeah, time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Vicarino was, the, when Carmine Persico, who just passed away, when he went to jail, let Vicarino be the street boss as I understand it. And Vicarina didn't want to give that position up. And so it created a war, you know, between the two of them. And the bodies were dropping like crazy. I mean, because there had been like a period of quiet for a long time. And then all of a sudden this thing started up. And so pressure, we were told, you know, put the pressure on the Colombo family and all the gangsters basically to see if we can put an end to this thing. And they started the task force. And I remember... You know, you deal with these guys and sometimes they outsmart you and sometimes you could outsmart them a little bit. I remember in the, there was a squad commander in a precinct where the Colombo capo got into a scuffle with a bunch of cops over, I don't even know what it was over, just something silly. And what happened was the cops called the 1013, which is a call for help. You know, it was a big thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, when they got back into the precinct, we had the officer looked at the photos of all the wise guys that we had, and they picked out all the people that were involved in this, that circled them and, and all of that. And we ended up doing a, a report to the Eastern District, this guy, Andy Maloney, who ran the Eastern District of New York, the federal prosecutor. And we had all the gangsters surrender themselves. We reached out. I got a hold of the driver of this Catolo, uh, Billy Catolo, who's dead now. And tell your boss he's got a case. He's got to get his lawyer and surrender. I mean, the, the thinking was that let them surrender to us and pay for that lawyer, which they did. And that ultimately ended up being used in the federal court, that report that we did, because it showed that he was the boss of this particular crew. Just uh, on their conversations in the squad, yeah. he was directing and he was the, calling him boss and all of that. 
So in that, in that sense, we kind of outfoxed them. Uh-oh. Yeah, you did. But I have to tell you a story where I was outfoxed. You know, some of these guys are very, maybe they lack a formal education, but some of them are very smart. And John, that native intelligence. No, I tell you, John Gotti, for whatever his faults was, he had this leadership quality that people would follow him, you know. But there was this one Bonanno guy who was sort of a sleeper. At least sleeping to me anyway. His name was Frank Culpa, who I think he became a federal informant now, if he's still alive. But I got a call from a prosecutor out in Los Angeles saying that uh, this particular guy is going to be coming on an airplane into the into into uh, LaGuardia Airport, Kennedy Airport, and we'd like him surveilled in in New York. So we did this. Hunter and I we picked this person up and we followed him, and he meets this guy in Lower Manhattan by the name of Frankie Copa, who was a banano guy, this Copa. And they go into a restaurant. Now we're outside and we're parked sort of in a in a, uh, in a parking garage. We had a perfect view of the front of the restaurant. So there's no way he's coming out of there. We're going to miss him. One hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. The guy never came out. So my partner went in and he came out five minutes later. He said, the guy's not in there. I said, what are you talking about? I not be in there. We were right here. We couldn't have missed him. So we both went in and we went into the restaurant, into through the kitchen, into the back. There was an exit on the other side of the block. Yeah. So he went in one way and came out on an entirely different street. I said, he's very slick. Yes, he was. So the next day we followed him again. I said, well, I, he got away with it that time, but I'm going to see what he does this time. So I follow him around and now I'm going to pick him up at his house, which was on Staten Island, which is sort of like a forestry kind of an area where he lived. Big trees and stuff like that. In Brooklyn, there aren't a lot of big trees. And so he's doing his thing. He's got cameras. He's got all kinds of stuff in his house. He had a nice house. And I'm watching him. I'm hiding. I'm standing behind a big tree on his property. Yeah, I mean, that over an acre. And I'm standing behind his big tree. And and I'm watching very carefully. And now he's going in his house. Now, when he went in his house, the minute I saw his head go in, where I don't see him anymore, I stepped out from behind the tree. But he did this. He went in like this, and then he turned back again. <laughs> to say if anybody was looking, he had me pinned, standing right out. <laughs> so this guy's smarter than I am. He was really some of these guys are pretty slick. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. I remember that some of them are, are really hyper aware. Yeah, it's really surveillance conscious, and the next one won't be right. Or if he is, he can't really tell it. Right. It's just I don't know, boy. But most of them were pretty hyper alert. It seemed to me like because they're so used to you know. It's not only looking for cops or agents; it's also looking for other mobsters well, out there that might be, be wanting to waylay them. I mean, it's a matter of life and death for them. For us, it's not a matter of life and death, but for them, it could be a matter of life and death. Yeah. I remember we, you mentioned Greg Scarpa. He was a pretty bad guy. I was part of the search warrant. We searched his house. And I remember when we searched his house, it was, he, if I'm not mistaken, he had been shot in the eye and he survived this bullet in the eye. And then he had eight, you know, it was a whole big mess with him. But I remember when we did the search warrant, I opened up his closet and he had about 10 jogging suits. On a <laughs> Lined up. <laughs> <a> diversified wardrobe. <laughs> It's like an FBI agent friend of mine here in Kansas City, a little bit older guy. He said, you know, he said, these guys, he said, used to be they'd wear $1,000 suits and, and dress really nice. He said, now what do they do? He said, they wear jogging suits. He said, that's the demise of the mafia. <laughs> Interesting. I want to ask you one question that I'll let you go. We've been here uh, oh, about 50 minutes, looks like. And you may not know this, but you talked about going to these trials. 
You may remember the situation. I did a show on this. A copper named William Peace, who was feeding information to Gotti, P-I-E-S-T. And the reason I did the show on him is I got a guy here in Kansas City that the guy actually... With one leg. Has... Right, right, yes. right. I have guys, a friend of mine now, I helped put him in jail back in 1990, and he's got out and turned a new leaf over, and he was been on the show a couple of times, and he told me about being in a joint with this William Peace, who only had one leg, and he was in for ratting out different, I don't remember what all he told Gotti about different surveillances and where they had wires up and things like that. You remember that guy? I do, yeah, yeah. He was a snitch. I mean, you know, he was sort of a, he was a snitch for the Gambinos. He was giving them information on the police. I think he was assigned to the intelligence division. He was, he was. I think, see, he had had this accident. He tried to get retired medically because he was driving a police car, but he was doing a personal kind of an errand, and he lost his leg, and they wouldn't retire him medically, duty-related retirement, and he got mad, but so they gave him this, like an analyst kind of a job, I believe, with the intelligence unit, so he knew everything that the intelligence unit knew, which is, in this city, it would be about everything anybody's doing for the most part. Yeah. And then he was running to one of Gotti's, oh God, Butch, real tall guy, Butch Correo, yeah, yeah, and telling him about it. And then he was carrying it to Gotti, you know, another small world. My friend, Steve, he was also in a joint with Joe Butch Correo and used to walk the track with him quite a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He was also with Lefty Rosario. He had funny stories about Lefty Rosario, what a no good piece of crap he was and how it was always about do something for me, do something for me. So I did a show with this guy talking about that. And then Joe Pistone, I got him to give me a little interview talking about how Left Rosario was always about him and about how do something for me, do something for me. <laughs> I guess Joe said, my friend Steve got onto this. He said he heard, overheard or heard a podcast or something. And Joe Pistone said, uh, well, I'd hate to be Lefty Cellmate. And he got hold of me. He said, you know, he said, Joe Pistone said, I'd hate to be Lefty Cellmate. He said, I was lefty self-made, and he's right. He was a pain in the ass. He was a pretty courageous guy. (laughs) Oh, God, yes, he was. a courageous guy, he was. Yeah, he was. I tell you, I told him, I said, I couldn't do that. I like not being a working undercover from their standpoint of following them around and going in the bars, the restaurants where they were, seeing who their girlfriends were and that kind of thing, maybe finding some informants. But as far as acting like I was one of them and living a life, you know, I mean, live a life 24 hours a day for like, I don't know, six years, I think. It just, I don't know how anybody does that, to be quite honest. He had an incredible way of doing it. He was. He was incredible. So, Tony, one last thing. Tell me about what are the names of your novels? Well, the first one that I wrote is called It's a Sergeant Marky Mystery. All my novels are Sergeant Marky Mystery. The first one was The Case of Two in the Trunk. It's available on Amazon. and. It was the first time I ever did anything like this. And it turned out that it was very well received. We got, I think we got 33, 34 reviews. And I think all but two were like five star. I just followed it up with a second one called The Case of the Cross-Eyed Strangler. And we got 11 to 12 reviews and they're all five stars. So again, it's sort of a series with the Sergeant Markey. And he goes on to do these investigations. And there was a little bit of a twist at the end. And uh, they seem, people seem to like them. I like to do them. So it gives me something to do, and they're fun. Are they set in Manhattan and Brooklyn? Oh, it's all all New York City. New York City and a variety of different boroughs. They may travel out of state to do something, but as far as the investigation part of it, it's all in New York City. 
Well, you certainly know New York City, and I'm sure you can paint a picture of what that city's like, which is important. That's one thing I like about reading books like that is, what's the subway like? You know, what's it really like? What are their neighborhoods like? And walking down the street, that kind of thing. So, okay, Tony, I appreciate it. And I will get in touch with you when I get ready to put this up. I don't know if you do any marketing or anything yourself. I'll put it on my website. Can I see my website? Yeah, yeah. What is your website? I'm sorry, I forgot. It's uh, anthonysolano.com. That's C-E-L-A-N-O. Yeah, yeah, folks, that's www.anthonysolano.com, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-C-E-L-A-N-O. I looked that up and then I forgot to mention it. you have any Twitter or uh, Instagram or anything like that, social media? No, stuff? I'm just LinkedIn. I'm sort of in a stomach. LinkedIn. Yeah, right. You know, speaking of that, Bill Peast, he's on LinkedIn, and I sent him a message. I was trying to get him to call me and be on the show, but he wouldn't do it. I told him about my friend, who they were pretty tight for a while. They worked in a baker, the baker, the prison bakery together. But he seemed to know who I was talking about, but he never would get back with me, so I gave up on him. It's awkward for him. <laughs> yeah, really. All right. Well, you never heard to ask. You never That's know. That's right. All right, Tony, thanks Thank a lot. you very much, Gary. I appreciate the opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast Reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more Mob information that you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99 or $2.99 if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation and then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about Gangland Wire. You guys all know. I can leave that out. 
Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening, and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.